Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we get there? And whatever question I want to come up to add to that this week. Today, we have three other panelists besides me. Hello, everyone. We have Justin. Hi. Eric. Hey there. Pia. Hello, friends. And we have an awesome guest. I think he's awesome today. Henry Zhu. Uh, Hey, everyone. So you may know Henry as one of the main developers, if not the main developer behind Babel. Henry lives and works in Georgia, the US, and he's been in the open source area for a long time. How long have you been doing open source, Henry? It might have been 2014, 2015-ish, recently in terms of open source itself. But yeah, That is recent. Um, that's around when I got really involved as well. How did you get involved with Babel or Babel? Which one is it? That's always a fun question. I don't, I mean, I don't particularly care, but I say Babel. I first got involved in a linter called JSCS, which we merged into ESLint, which is the JavaScript linter that a lot of people use. And then through that, I found out about Babel after it changed its name from six to five. And so I found out about it later and I realized like compilers and linters are very similar in how they work. and somehow just kind of stumbled upon it and then became a maintainer. I I like to say it happened on accident. Awesome. So how is Babel funded? Right now, it's 100% through just donations. And the project is funded entirely on Open Collective. And then maybe some of us have other ways of getting uh, revenue. Like I still have a Patreon and uh, GitHub sponsors. So we have that individually, but majority of how I make money now as the only full-time person on Babel is through Open Collective. And we recently did start paying three of our other contributors, but it's not a lot. And we're still trying to figure out how to fundraise more. And I, I feel like we had a call the, earlier this week about fundraising and in the, during this time. And I was thinking, I feel less comfortable asking people for money, but maybe now it should be better because in a sense, like if you're going to rely on this infrastructure during this time, you probably should fund it even more maybe. So... That's a really good point. It's amazing that you're actually fully funded and you have been for, what, a year and a half now? Two years? Uh, two years, actually. This was it. Oh, it's April now. So March 2nd was the first day. So it's been two years. All right, 2018. So yeah, two years somehow. <laughs> it's been amazing. <laughs> just curious. Do you ever wish that you could just step away and just cut ties with it and go do something completely different? Like how... How tight are you to this project? Do you own it? Does it own you? I feel like, I mean, if we're going to talk about like control and stuff, we're not, none of us are really in control. I mean, feel that now. I don't know if it, uh, Babel owns me or anything because obviously nobody really owns it. And, and like, you know, we all say a lot that open source is a volunteer effort. Even though I'm getting paid, I'm still volunteering, choosing to get to do this, right? 
I don't feel like, well, I actually like to say that in a way, I don't feel that tied to Bell, but I think that helps me be a better maintainer, like feeling like I'm not the owner. I wasn't the creator either. So maybe that helps too, but I definitely care a lot about it, but maybe showing that I care about it is through somehow thinking a little bit bigger, like a bigger picture on, you know, that's why we're talking about open source as a whole and the community. And maybe I'm learning how to apply it through the specific project, but I think I care about like open source more, like the concept and, but the way I do that is through this project. And I don't see myself leaving that anytime soon or anything. At one point we, you and me, we talked about how something that was kind of your passion or like a project that you, you know, you really loved when you were still working at Adobe and we're doing this on the side, it suddenly became your work, like the main focus. Has that evolved? Has your relationship with the project itself or how you view Bubble change when you started working for it full time? Yeah, I, I think so. It's so weird that it's been two years. I haven't really spent that much time thinking about how it's changed that much in the last two years. But I know when I was still working at the company, Adobe, I mean, in the beginning, it was all about code and being a contributor. And I think over time, realizing that this project is a lot bigger than what my limited view was. Like, you know, if you have a bug, you want to fix it and you do like, we call those drive-by contributions, right? Eventually you start seeing, oh, there are obviously other issues there. And you're like, hey, maybe I can look into that. You become a maintainer. I start caring about the overall project and like where it's going. That gave me not the confidence really to do it. I just did it anyway because I saw no one was doing it. So you kind of just step up where there are gaps, which is not like the best way to maintain a project. It's just how it goes sometimes. But I think when I decided to quit was when I realized like the thing that I liked in open source was this maybe yeah maintenance side of things, which I consider not really about directly coding anything, but around the code. I know other people have different words for this. Like, you know, you can work on a programming language or a library, but there's also the meta language, which is like, conferences and the talks and the community and, you know, live streaming, all these things. I think those things were more interesting. And also you could say it's harder in a way. It's not technical, but you have to have technical knowledge to do this stuff. So, you know, maybe one of the things that I've still working on, it's super hard. I don't know if you could ever really deal with this is like the guilt that you have of not just doing open source. That's its own guilt. But I think a separate guilt is the guilt of not working on the technical part of the code. Like that is its own guilt, right? Especially if you're the only one involved, you know, if you're not doing other things and you feel like you're not doing work. And then now that I'm getting paid to do it, then you might feel even worse because people are giving me money. What did they expect? And I think it's good for us to think, you know, about what people expect because we want to help satisfy those people. But, you know, if we're all volunteering, they're also voluntarily giving us money, then you know, why don't we feel free to do what we actually want to do? But you have this expectation you put on yourself and other people, which a lot of it is all like, you know, in your head. No one's actually saying you can't do this or feeling sad or mad that you decided to, you know, I decided to read a book about, you know, cities or anthropology because that doesn't seem to have anything to do with open source. But I think, what okay, another thing I think I've realized is kind of just seeing other disciplines and different fields and seeing how they interact. And I think the true knowledge that we want to bring into open source is through other people and how they deal with things. And I mean, you can, I mean, you can, can get into like the faith aspect too, where like, 
you know, we're trying to figure out how to create a community and, you know, religious communities have been around for a long time. They're dealing with the same problems. Uh, maybe we can share ideas, that kind of stuff. Just to go a little more into that, you know, I'm looking at the repo right now. You have 2.3 million repos, depending on Babel. You have 591 issues, 136 pull requests. If I was in your shoes or any maintainer of this project, I would be crying. I'd be in a corner (laughs) in a fetal position and crying. Like, how do you kind of step away from that? Because a lot of other maintainers in their lives, they will get to this point where, you know, the issues stack up, but they're really not putting in perspective of how big this project is. It's kind of comes with it, but that's also me just being assuming. So please tell me how. Yeah, I think the how, a lot of it is, uh, maybe I'll use the word tacit. I don't want to use, maybe not tacit or implicit. It's just like, sometimes I don't know the answer of why, you know, I think a lot of us, we don't know why we do things too, but it is good for us to think about that. Like you say, why we love people, you know, like sometimes there's no words to describe that kind of thing. And I don't think that all open source is like that. And, you know, it can just be something you do for fun or just in your free time. But I think, you know, for me, I just feel like it's so important to me that I'm willing to dedicate uh, time for this. In terms of like, feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, we, we always talk about like how like GitHub notifications, you have thousands of them and feeling like you can never get to the end. But I don't know, maybe it's a certain mind shift, mindset shift that we need to have where it's like, we think that, you know, the number of issues has to go to zero. And if we don't do that, we're not good people or, or something like that. I guess I don't need to bring up the whole pandemic situation again, but it's similar to that too. I think that you know, some of us are being voluntarily asked to do certain things and, and it seems like there's no hope, but we decide to do it anyway. And I think for all of us in whatever situation we're in, we try to do the best we can and hope that other people will do the same. And I think that's something that keeps me going too, is knowing that I'm not the only person that's working on Babel. There are other people that have been on the team for a while, also new people that just show up. You know, one of the great things about like, welcoming and adding new people is they're a lot more motivated than you sometimes to, to get involved, right? And that kind of re-sparks that first love for the project that you have. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's hard to not get bogged down because you look at these numbers of how much work you have to do. But I think we continue to assume that, you know, one, that that number has to go to zero and then we have to be the ones to do it. And this idea of, I think this is like a common feeling in tech is like, Everything's about measurement. Everything's about like answers and getting answers fast. Like there are bugs that we find, glitches in the system that we have to fix. But a lot of these things can't really be fixed. Uh, doesn't mean we don't work on them, but there's no easy way to get out of this uh, situation. I've been lucky with my projects. I haven't had a ton of you know influx of issues. One of my projects does have a backlog, but I mean, you know, that's typical. I haven't had any really entitled users. I can only imagine the entitlement that comes through the issues on a JavaScript project because there's just so many developers. It's bound to happen. Is that another assumption that I'm running into? Or how do you deal with devs that are coming in and just saying, fix it now, and then you know, hit and run issues? Do you mean the assumption that there's a lot of entitled people because there's more people? Like entitled developers that open issues like this broke this, you suck, fix it, or I'm 
gonna be I'm gonna go on Twitter and, and yeah, Stack yeah. Overflow and tell you everyone how about you suck. I mean, I can't speak for other communities, I guess, but I would I think it's safe to assume that with JavaScript, because that's the most popular language, most people are learning it in boot camps, you know, you have to use it, I guess, for websites. And maybe that's another reason why people feel maybe not entitled, but just mad because they they have to use it. Maybe they don't like JavaScript. I mean, maybe a lot of us don't, but we do it anyway. But, you know, they're forced to use it. And so they're even more frustrated because they're like, well, someone made me use Babel and it doesn't work the way I want it to, or I don't get it. And no, it's understandable. And from that point of view, like, I understand why they are frustrated. Of course, we would probably say, like, you don't have to get frustrated at us at it because we're just trying to do our best too. But it's hard to kind of communicate that online, right? So, you know, I haven't really had anyone say that in person, right? They would never, I don't think people usually do that. If anything, never. I've had people go up to me and they say, oh, I said this issue. I don't think you remember, but I said this and then like apologizing for what they did or something. Really? In yeah. real life? Mm-hmm. Whoa, that's cool. <laughs> I feel like you, you mentioned this a bit earlier and it's, it's one of the things I really like about how you view open source is that it's less about you individually and more about the community. And so I, I think one of the answers that you sort of had to Justin's questions it isn't so much like it's not about me to fix everything or to make the backlog down to zero. It's about all of us. And I'm just part of all of us, right? I'm just one cog in that. And so you seem to be very good, or at least I, I seem to see it in you, to take yourself out of the, out of the situation and instead look instead at, at the community as a whole. Does that sound right? Does that sound like I'm, I'm getting the right in, interpretation? Yeah, I mean, I like that. I think there's definitely a balance in that too, because in the sense that I, I've talked about this before too, that I think as maintainers um, or just anyone, honestly, sometimes I feel like we kind of view each other at extremes. And this is true for maintainers themselves. Like they'll feel entitled and they say the same things and they're the ones that are feeling that, right? I always mentioned that, what's it called? The Dark Knight quote or some Batman, the quote where it talks about like becoming the villain after like if living mm-hmm. long enough to be the villain. But just that, Either you're completely anonymous, like you know, most people have no idea that I work on Babel and they use it, right? Millions of people are using it. And not that they have to know that. It's just that if they did, they might actually empathize with the project more. I don't care if people have to know who I am. I'm just saying that you would probably treat us and the project in a different light if you knew that who was working on it, why they're working on it, what situation they're in, the background, all that stuff. The opposite is when they do know, suddenly now you're just like some god or celebrity, right? And they treat you also not like a person, right? So either scenario, I think you're not really treated as a person. One is you're ignored. And the other one is you're sort of ignored because they're afraid because they think you're too smart or something like that. And so, yeah, I think with that is, I do want to emphasize the community, but then you have to do also recognize that there are people there too. So it's like, how do you balance that, right? The personal, but then also the individualistic part, but then also the community part, yeah. Um, Henry, you mentioned before about how open source communities could look at faith communities or religion or church communities mm-hmm. for learnings or, you know, parallels, lessons. Do you have anything in mind that you would like to discuss on, about that? Anything from your kind of experience that we can, we can all share? Yeah, okay. And even just getting back to what Richard was saying, I think that one metaphor I like from the Bible talks about how the church is a body, like a kind of like a physical body. I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of people of religious faith, they think that the church is just a building too, right? 
just like I use different metaphor for like the city. Like a lot of people think the city is just a bunch of buildings or open source is just code. There's always like something is just this, right? It's a very like reductionistic view of things. But I think if any of us are actually in those communities, we know that it's greater than that. And I think the body is a good way of talking about that. In the Bible, it talks about how the church is the body in the sense that the members are like the parts. And even talking about how when one part hurts, the others feel that, right? We could, we could talk about now this now in terms of the pandemic. When we feel people suffering around us, we realize that, you know, we're not alone in this and maybe we should help out in other people. And that body metaphor, I think, is super important for us in the technological age because that's exactly the thing that makes us want to be disembodied. And now we have to be online and we have to use like Zoom and all these things to do community in church, same problem. You know, if anything, in a way, the church has to figure out how to learn from open source maybe because they've been trying to do everything physically, right? And now they have to figure out how to shift that online. I think it's ironic because open source, I think like we're trying to create community and usually we find that in the physical space. And so we try to create conferences and meetups, but now we can't do that again. (laughs) So now we're all trying to figure out how to best do that. And, And I think that most people recognize that it's not, we have to kind of meet anyway and we have to meet online, but it's not like what we actually want, right? We do want the physical, I would use the word presence, that you can't always feel what people are, you know, like online. And so I think maybe one thing that I might talk about is, yeah, maybe just like the idea of liturgy, a different word is just ritual. And this is not like, liturgy is just, I would say the religious word for religion, well, like specific to religion, but Obviously, any community has its own liturgies and rituals. And we have that. I talked about this before with like, you have like Hacktoberfest or, you know, meetups and conferences, like things that we do consistently because it's predictable, it's constant. You know, why do we, in times of trouble, we actually are drawn towards liturgy because everything around us is unstable. We have no idea what's going on. I don't even know what I'm going to do tomorrow. You know, like there's no sense of what will happen in the future. And so we, we stick to these things. And we do this in normal times too. We have birthdays and I mean, now we have funerals and graduations and now we can't actually have a graduation in person. So now we have to do it online, I guess, right? So I think it's important for us to figure out what are the current liturgies where we have in our communities, which is in open source. What do they do to us? Like, what are they pointing us toward? And then maybe we need to make new ones or we need to update them. I think that's something just like a lens to which we can think about like community and stuff. I really like that lens. It reminds me of the climate crisis, which is, mm-hmm. you know, much worse than COVID, but not as active and not as present. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's really tough. But one of the things that's really interesting about our, our ecosystem is we have these conferences that are all over the world. People fly there all the time. And there's a huge carbon cost for conferences. Huge. Uh, there's been really interesting studies by carbon scientists on how much their conferences cost to the carbon cost of the world, right? And so I think right now we have this really interesting opportunity where we're all forced to face, like, all our conferences are canceled. Do we want to start them back up again immediately? Or should we find another way online to do things? And if we have to do it online, how do we invoke that presence that you mentioned? How do we get that? How do we have the coffee table conversations that are so important? that really make those conferences worthwhile. A lot of the companies I've talked to or heard of that have had to cancel the conferences are, aren't sad about the, the attendee cost. 
they're sad because all the sort of elbow wagging or whatever you want to call it over the water cooler is how they actually get funded, right? By actually talking to, to funders who come to the conference and say, hey, listen, if you like this, you, know, you could help out our project. And so that's another liturgical exercise for us and where we want to go as a community. And that's something that really resonated with, with, with what you said. So mm-hmm. thank you. I, I want to make a right turn and ask your involvement with TC39 and how does that help you? How does that help Babel? How does that help with sustainability of not only Babel, but like the JavaScript language as a whole? Can you go a little more into what you've accomplished since you've joined? There's a lot to say there. Let's unpack this. Well, I mean, I guess I'd say at first, I mean, Babel has been around for a while and I don't know if it had has always had representation on the committee. So it took a while for us to be able to join. And I mean, I, there's a lot of more legal stuff around that, around like who's allowed to join. The reason why you can't just have anyone show up is because they, they want everyone to sign this thing so that you, know, you can give away what you say or what is there to the comments, right? Which is a good thing. So all the companies have to sign that, that thing. Sort of like making it open source in a way, except it's for the standard. And so, you know, you have to be a member or you have to be a nonprofit, but then Babel isn't really that it's just this thing and maybe we could be a guest. But in the end, you kind of have to, I mean, regardless, you know, before you had to fly there every two months to kind of be in the meeting. And maybe a lot of people complain online that the big decisions get made at the committee. And this is things that committees have been talking about for a while is that maybe if those decisions are happening there, maybe we should spread out those things. Or there's, there's a lot of like, it's a, it's an institution that's been around for a while in a way, right? It's a committee that's been around for over 20 years. And so things have actually changed a lot since the beginning and are a lot better than a lot of other standard bodies, honestly. You know, like it used to be a Word document, right? And like the spec itself, and now it's on GitHub, it's Markdown and stuff. And now, you know, the last meeting was, I think it was last week, it had to be online. And so everyone was using Zoom, which is good. Before it was kind of biased toward the US and North America, I guess, time zone. So everyone, all the European, Asian countries, they had to fly in. And so now, I guess the time zone thing is still an issue, but they don't have to fly now. But now we're trying to figure out how to like change the time zones, maybe for each day. It's it's, uh, three days, usually every other month on the third week of the month. It's like eight hours, basically. And there's like breaks and lunch and stuff. But it's not exactly the most fun place to be. Like, I don't really, like, I didn't really, uh, <laughs> I, I went and I was like, it's really interesting to be there to kind of get a sense of what it's like. You know, like people, if you're not there, it's just sort of like I was saying before, if you're not there, you, it's hard to like say anything about it. Like people like to criticize, oh, they do this a lot. It's like, no, be there and you'll understand why it's difficult to just coordinate with like 50 people, right? Decide what's going to be in the language for all of JavaScript. Like that's, it's a lot of pressure. And you have to vote on, I mean, they don't have to vote, but you have to come to a consensus on like what's okay, what should they remove. There's a certain, you know, bias towards adding things maybe because people want to like see things move forward, but then other people are like, no, let's make it more cohesive or stable. There's a lot of just issues around language design that, you know, most of us, even as programmers have no experience in, right? We have no idea what it's like to make our own language. We just know how to use it. The, the committee has its own issue before, which was maybe that the people that were on the committee were only people that work on programming languages. They maybe don't even write JavaScript, but eventually they added in like implementers. So like the people that implement it in Chrome and Firefox. 
Safari. And then now they have a lot more just, we call them practitioners. So just people that are JavaScript developers, but they also understand the spec a little bit as well. So I think it's been really cool to see over time how it's actually progressed in terms of like, just the inclusion of different types of people and how they think to make JavaScript better for everyone. For me, yeah, I haven't really been going to the meetings, even if online, but we have people on the team that show up. And then I think that Babel is important enough now that at least, even if I can't say like, we need this, that people are thinking about it in the process of coming up with these proposals. And we also have like TypeScript on there and they're also a compiler. So we have similar, I guess, asks maybe. And so at least I feel like even if I'm not there, I don't, I don't need to be there because like there are people that are, that care about our project. But from the money point of view, yeah, I might be like, well, you know, that's a good opportunity to ask for funding, but I don't, I feel maybe I don't feel comfortable doing that and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's some random thoughts there. <laughs> there's no, that was more than I expected. And I really appreciate it. Now, when you go out there, because a lot of people who don't know, Henry, you work for yourself. You work for the project for the most part, you know, off the donations. Uh Who pays for these travel expenses? Is this included in your membership to TC39 or is there a corporation sponsoring? How does it work? So we don't have anything formal like that. It's just, I literally just show up as me. I guess I represent Babel, but... I'm just paying out of my pocket, which is why I don't usually go to these things. I, I I used to like find a conference that happened to be around that time. So I'd like to take a flight, stay a little bit longer and just show up. Or it was in New York. So I just take the um, MTA, like subway and then I'll just be there. And they, and everyone like wants me to be there, but it's like no one's going to like the people there doesn't mean the companies are going to pay for it or anything. And so, yeah, it's not really sponsored. And, and in a way, like I almost feel like we don't really have an incentive to be there we don't really have incentive to do anything, honestly, because like, you know, like, not that we need it. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it in a way. It's like, although it's sad, we have to do all this on our own. It's like, if I want to do it, then I'll do it. I don't have this. I mean, I guess we all have an agenda, but like, if I want to be involved in this, then I can be involved. In it. Kind of reminds me of, uh, frankly, uh, just because we were talking about earlier, church. I mean, <laughs> to be a good Christian, you don't have to go to church. But if you want to, you should, you know, like that's where you meet people in your community. And it's the same with like what the involvement is there and it's all voluntary and it's all mm. part of it. But the more you go, the more you get out of it. Right. That's right. True. And the more you learn and the more you're part of something that's bigger than you. Um, you mentioned, you know, being the, the body politic, I guess, or just mm-hmm. the body in general. Something that I think just going like following on Rich's comment about church, that I think that the open source community, like most needs maybe right now is how we can learn how to heal and support ourselves through these troubled times. And that's something that church in general has been really good at helping folks transition through these kind of really traumatic periods. And I was wondering if we can, if A, if you know of any spaces or any kind of ways that the community is now supporting each other and B, what do you think we need? Like, what should we do or, or create, you know? What's, where can we best spend our time and energy helping the members of our community kind of go through uh, what we're all going through now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, even in terms of like, say, church itself, right? Now that we can't meet in person, what are we doing to create community? And I think, and we can start talking about technology here. It's like, I think that, 
most churches are bought into the idea that technology will solve problems because we're all like in that culture of just using tech. And I think as people in tech, we can be the people to say that it doesn't mean they shouldn't use tech, but it's like of all people, people that are in these communities should understand to be wary of when we should use it and when we shouldn't and how to use it in the right way. Because you could say to take it to an extreme level, well, you know, what if after this pandemic, everyone's just like, you know, we don't even need to be in person anymore. What's the point? Because we could just do this online. There's this idea of like even virtual church or VR church. We could decide what you want to listen to, who's there. You know, it's all about, but then everything becomes like super consumerist, right? Part of the reason why we do meet in person is because we have to deal with each other, right? A group of people that are not connected because maybe not necessarily because they like each other, but because they like the same thing and learning to learn to work together. And just like in the world, we all have to learn to live with people that we might not agree with or understand well. And I think that something like any of these kinds of communities is a way to combine like and say, hey, the only reason why we're able to meet together is because, well, say in for the Christian community, we'd say, you know, a lot of people like join a church because they want community. But in the end, at, at its essence, it's about like God. It's about who you're worshiping. And so, and in this time, we realized that all the other stuff for why you might join church is taken away in a way, right? There's no more like fun little, you know, advertisements and, and these kinds of things to get the frills to get you to get involved. It's like at the end, like, I actually need help. I need like something beyond me that I think will give me hope. And I think in a way, like it's, it's, a, it's like weird, you know, it's like to say it's a good thing in, in the midst of all this bad stuff. But I think a lot of us start to appreciate just like the simple stuff, right? Being able to just be around your family or, or, or just talk to someone. And I think that in, in the midst of suffering that happens, but when everything is going well, you kind of just turn back to yourself into convenience and stuff like that. And so I guess one it's like, yeah. No, I was just thinking one of the things that I think I'll miss the most or I'm missing the most, just the ability, the opportunity to hug someone. Mm. Like I, I saw this morning the picture of in Wuhan, yeah. people are starting to hug each other again with the masks and the whole like protective gear. And I think I was like, oh my God, I missed that. You know, yeah. because a big part of helping someone go through a healing process is being able to hug someone, right? Yeah. And really, really, you know, I'm waiting for the day where we can do that again <laughs> without risking, you know, getting virus or whatever. No, for sure. There, it's funny. There are actually like these, you, I mean, theological issues that are coming up because of this too. So uh, one example that I, it might not make sense, but there's different liturgies that we have in the church. Like one is like baptism and communion. See, these are all physical things. So might be now people are saying like, oh, we'll just do it virtually. And you kind of like sprinkle water over your own head or you drink your own uh, wine and bread. Um, but other people are like, no, they think that if you do that, then you think that this act is purely symbolic. Um, and other people think that, no, you have to do it within this group of people in person. Like, as there's different interpretations on how that works. And it does kind of shape like what you actually think about these things, right? Is everything just a symbol or is, that, is there something like actually real, quote unquote, about some of this stuff? And I think that gets to the core of any kind of belief. And I think particularly in Christianity, it's a faith that does care about embodiment. Even though we talk about like spirituality and like heaven and these kinds of things, you know, we're, t- we're talking about this on Good Friday, which is 
the day that Christ died on the cross and then later he did resurrection on Easter. It's like a picture that God decided to come as a person, even though he was a spirit and he conquered death through resurrection. So like that whole, even if you don't believe that, that's like a picture that the body matters and that life matters and the caring over sickness matters too. And so those liturgies I was talking about, like communion, drinking the wine and eating the bread is like a physical way of remembering what happened. And I think those kinds of things are important because otherwise, yeah, everything can be just virtual and simulated. And so I think it's kind of nice to have these kinds of physical reminders in an age where we kind of stop caring about that. Like why do people stand up uh, during worship where they, they, they bow their head? Like there are different acts that people do because we have to remember that our body is there. But but now it's like, okay, everything can be virtual. Maybe eventually we just sit there or we just lie on the bed, right? It's everything's uh, virtual. We don't have to do anything. Is that really what we want? I don't know. It's not what I want, but I totally, I totally get that perspective and I understand where you're going. And I think this check-in is fantastic. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. That's around time. Thank you so much for your thoughts. For those of you who are curious, Henry has a podcast that he did with Nadia well, it's called Hope in Source. It's at hopeinsource.com. Uh, I highly suggest you check it out. He's got another one too. Mm-hmm. Podcast.babbljs.io. Check it out. I have three, actually. <laughs> What's the other one? Uh, the, I have one that's similar, similar to this, I guess. Uh, Maintainers Anonymous. Although oh, that man. one is more, it's not really about open source. It's more about just maintainers. Uh, and recently I've been trying to talk to maintainers that are not in open source. So. Like mm. actually before that, you know, we went to Brussels for the uh, bunch of conference, open source conferences. And I met someone at a conference called the Maintainers, Bernardo, and he was one of the speakers. And later he's like, hey, you should come to this conference in Brussels. You can stay at my house, uh, which is like super nice. <laughs> like I only met him for like two days and I get to just, I guess, live life with his family and all that stuff. But uh, mm. I recorded a podcast with him in the end. He does like architecture and then... So we just talked about how that relates to maintenance, obviously, because of housing yeah. and creating housing and caring about your home, stuff like that. So I think just, yeah. Awesome. Where else can people find you on the web? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm left underscore pad. And uh, <laughs> my website is uh, henryzoo.com. Do you ever regret awesome. that of handle? No, actually. I think it's, well, it's funny because now that it's been so long since the incident happened, like, Nobody even knows what that is or they ask okay. about it. I mean, the only bad thing is when people, and not in a, like, a malicious way, they think like I did it or something, but <laughs> they just, they don't know, right? So, yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Bad was a whole thing. Google is if you don't know it, everyone. Thank you so much. Now it's time for a spotlight. I already did my spotlight, which was actually open source. I'm cheating and using Henry's resource to talk about. Justin, what do you got? So, I'm on the selection committee for the Mozilla Open Source Support Program. We have a COVID-19 solutions fund, and there are over 100 applicants that I have to go over this weekend. So I'm very, very excited about that. Anyway, there is this really awesome open source project called Open Food Network, and it's an open source software platform that's designed to help farmers collaborate and sell together. And I totally gave them the, yes, we need to fund this project. So Check them out at openfoodnetwork.org. Thank you. Pia? So I have mutualaid.nyc. 
It's a website that's putting together mutual aid funds in New York City. Check them out, join them, support them. You know, they're doing a bunch of amazing work, mainly supporting folks who are quarantined or are at greater risk. So doing groceries for them, funding them. So yeah, mutualaid.nyc. Awesome. I feel really bad. I feel like I cheated. So I'm actually just going to ping something else. So Gary Snyder uh, is a poet from California. He was a poet laureate for California once. He was a, a beat poet, a good friend of Kerouac in the book Dharma Bums. They talk a lot about Gary Snyder. He's the character Jaffe. And he was one of my entry points as a very angry young man who was raised evangelical and then decided to hate the church and leave it forever. Gary Snyder helped me realize that spirituality doesn't have to be tied to a certain religion. And I think I'm a better person for it. So I really would suggest checking out Gary Snyder's poetry. It helps me appreciate the numinous in everything, which I think is great. Henry, what do you got? I don't have anything, actually. I haven't really looked up anything. But What's your favorite gospel? Mark, John, Luke, Thomas? Maybe Mark, just because it's short. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. All right. Thank you so much for all of your resources and all of your discussion. It was really yeah. great having you on here. Absolutely. And see you all later. Yeah. All right, y'all. Peace. Peace. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.